Stories, fables, ghostly tales. In space, there's no sound. And when terror seeps into the minds of creatures by an unknown force, what do we do as a human race? What if humans were in fact under the microscope, and our future sat on the knife's edge by an ancient race? Concepts we will explore in today's episode welcome lovely listeners to two sci-fi stories titled Mankind and The Gift of Mercy. <laughs> oh yes. And on this lovely Friday, I have had my delicious Earl Grey, and now I'm drinking a lovely, sweet, hot, red date tea. It's earthy, with a robust, herbal flavor that really hugs your chest. I really, really recommend it. And that was red date tea. It's so relaxing. Now, join me with your own hot beverage for some sinister sci-fi stories. Let's do this. When mankind ventured out into space, we never suspected what was to come. Our first inhabited planet was less than 30 light years away, far closer than we would ever have thought. The issue? Everyone was dead. The entire planet was like that. A perfectly stable world with no issues that we could determine, and yet it seems the suicide rate was the greatest cause of death among the people. We don't know why, but they apparently had been doing this for some time. Years of study later showed that the reptile-like race had taken nearly 10 times as long as we did to reach the industrial age, and had not gotten very far beyond that. Time went on, and we soon discovered that this was not an isolated occurrence. Species after species had killed each other off, and themselves off, for one reason or another. Some had died off so early only a few stone monuments marked that they had ever been there. Some had established empires spanning nearly a dozen systems. But always, they were all dead, down to the last child. And so we travelled the stars, colonising the lost homeworlds we found, along with others. We studied the creatures on many worlds, although none bore intelligent life. In time, we studied the technology of the more advanced dead races, gleaming a scientific secret or two we had missed. It was rather amusing to see the scientific community collectively slap their heads when they see the simple ideas and concepts they had missed. Once, and just once, we found a sentient race still alive. On a planet with three quarters the gravity of Earth, a planet primarily dominated by jungles bore a race of insect-like scavengers. They were barely beyond the Stone Age, farming and agriculture still in its early days. We considered making contact, but in the end decided against it. They were a very violent race, and many would kill one another for the smallest detail. Suicide also seemed to be something they would resort to with little or no good reason. In fact, the entire race seemed insane. Long-term observations showed that after hatching, the individual would slowly but surely go insane to the point where none reached old age. In fact, the only reason this race had not yet gone extinct is a combination of high birth rates, short lifespans, and a child being able to defend itself hours after birth. 
In any other race, this bizarre affliction can, and did, drive them to extinction. For nearly 700 years, mankind grew and expanded. We did not find another living race during that time. Or find out how we were immune. Many came up with theories, but none fit better than any others. Ethnic, religious, and cultural differences became less important when you were away from Earth. And in the end, those who could not agree ended up living on different worlds. The UTA, the United Terran Alliance, controlled over 87% of mankind's colonies from its seat of power on Earth. A few rogue factions cropped up. Piracy and smuggling saw a rebirth in this new space age, and mankind went on as it always had. Then, a moment that would change our history came. The UTA dreadnought, Supremacy, was in essence a city in space, constructed with our most advanced technology, to a point where systems were being updated during construction, and having a length of nearly seven miles. It was the mightiest ship we had ever created. The Supremacy was sent to investigate a new world our long-range sensors show that had space technology upon it. It was farther out than we had ever travelled before, but not by much. It was assumed that this would just be another dead world, that we might find some usable raw materials pre-harvested in the form of abandoned constructions in orbit. What we found was an outpost of a spacefaring race, its people still alive and well. Dozens of ships were in orbit around a rocky empty world, along with a space dock to repair and refuel them. They were remarkably primitive compared to our own, and much smaller. The largest was perhaps the length of a football field, if that. From the scarring and damage, along with the derelict ship floating nearby of a different make, they had been fighting not too long ago. Our first contact did not go so well, however. We would later piece together what happened, and it went something like this. As soon as what might have at the time been the largest spaceship in the galaxy appeared on top of them, the race known as the Kondar were sent to the edge of panic. The commander tried to keep a disaster from occurring, and ordered his ships not to open fire. Communications on both sides failed, we ourselves had long ago stopped carrying any equipment or training our crew for first encounters. And apparently the Condar had not had any first contacts of their own in hundreds of years. It also didn't help that our subspace communications were just advanced enough that the garbled words that the Condor picked up on on their outdated systems sounded horribly sinister and alien, even by the wide standards of the galaxy as it now was. One of the Kondar gunmen on the closest ship had a panic attack after hearing our garbled transmission. He fired upon the Supremacy, which in a placating gesture had lowered its shields. The shot was able to breach the hull at a single point and cost the lives of three crewmen. The captain of Supremacy ordered the shields raised and a warning shot fired. Unlucky for the Condar, the concept of warning shots was alien to them, and they did not stop to ask why the single shot had missed. It was a short fight. The Supremacy blew away a single craft to secure its escape victor, a sad but necessary tactic. 
This only hurt our reputation further, with what happened later. As we soon discovered, nearly 3% of the galaxy was part of what was known as the Veil of Madness. Any race within this sector of space would slowly but surely go insane. Short jaunts were safe enough, but more than that, and permanent damage to the mind would result. We had apparently been sitting in the galactic equivalent of the Bermuda Triangle, and had finally breached its edge. When the Condar realized that both our escape and entry vectors led directly into the Veil, a panic started. With surprising speed, news spread among their people and among others of what had happened. The story grew worse with each retelling, especially once it left official military reports. Tales of the titanic black ship that came beyond the Veil, that sent out signals in a horrid dark language, obliterated dozens of the Condor's finest warships in seconds for no reason, and then vanished like a ghost soon spread everywhere. Humanity had become the boogeyman of the universe. Raids from pirate groups further cemented our dark reputation, and in time, we came to work with the role. Every attempt to convince people that we wanted fair negotiations was seen as a deception. Rather than fight a losing battle, we played to the role given to us. Soon, we were seen as wicked, but not unreasonable, and gained both fear and respect throughout the galaxy. Few humans appeared in view of aliens outside of deliberately frightening power armor, and human ambassadors used voice synthesizers to sound like the first garbled communications had. Looking back, it actually worked out in our favor. After years of contact, most alien races know almost nothing about humans other than exaggerated horror stories. They rarely bother us, and the ones that do never return home. The only bit of info we were more than happy to share with them was the reason we can live in the Vale. Turns out, we were all a little crazy. To start with, <laughs> I think the fact that we're pulling the largest practical joke in the galaxy was already proof enough of that. Message begins. We made a mistake. That is the simple undeniable truth of the matter. However painful it might be, the flaw was not in our observations. For those machines were as perfect as we could make, and they showed us only the unfiltered light of truth. The flaw was not in the predictor, for it is a device of pure infallible logic, turning raw data into meaningful information without the taint of emotion or bias. No, the flaw was within us. The orchestrators of this disaster, the sentients who thought themselves beyond such failings, we are responsible. It began a short while ago, as these things are measured less than six to six deli ago. We detected faint radio signals from a blossoming intelligence 2 to the 14 delis outward from the galactic core, as photons travel. At first, crude and unstructured. These leaking broadcasts quickly grew in complexity and strength, as did the messages they carried. 
Through our observatories, we watched a world of strife and violence, populated by a barbaric race of short-lived, fast-breeding vermin. They were brutal and uncultured things, which stabbed and shot and burned each other with no regard for life or purpose. Even their concepts of art spoke of conflict and pain. They divided themselves according to some bizarre cultural patterns and set their every industry to cause of death. They terrified us. But we were older and wiser, and so very far away, so we did not fret. Then we watched them split the atom and breach the heavens with the breadth of one of their single, short generations, and we began to worry. When they began actively transmitting messages and greetings into space, we felt fear and horror. Their transmissions promised peace and camaraderie to any who were listening, but we had watched them for too long to buy into such transparent deceptions. They knew we were out here, and they were coming for us. The orchestrators consulted the predictor, and the output was dire. They would multiply and grow and flood out of their home system like some uncountable tide of devourer worms, consuming all that lay in their path. It might take six to eight dealers, but they would destroy us if left unchecked. With aching carapaces, we decided to act, and sealed our fate. The gift of mercy was eight to four strides long, with a mouth two quarters that in diameter filled with many four to four weights of machinery, fuel and ballast. It would push itself up to the two-eighths of light speed with its onboard fuel and then begin to consume interstellar primary element to Div 2 to feed it unlimited acceleration. It would be traveling at nearly light speed when it hit. They would never see it coming. Its launch was a day of mourning, celebration and reflection. The horror of the act we had committed weighed heavily upon us all. The necessity of our crime did little to comfort us. The gift had barely cleared the outer cometary halo when the mistake was realized, but it was too late. The gift could not be caught, could not be recalled or diverted from its path. The architects and work crews, horrified at the awful power of the thing upon which they labored, had quietly self-terminated in droves. Walking unshielded into radiation zones, neglecting proper null pressure safety, or simply ceasing their nutrient consumption until their metabolic functions stopped. The appalling cost in lives had forced the orchestrators to streamline the gift's design and construction. There had been no time for the design or implementation of anything beyond the simple, massive engines and the stabilizing systems. We could only watch in shame and horror as the light of genocide faded into infrared against the distant void. They grew, and they changed. In a handful of lifetimes, they abolished war, abandoned their violent tendencies, and turned themselves to the grand purposes of life and art. We watched them remake first themselves, and then their world. Their frail, soft bodies gave way to gleaming metals and plastics. They unified their people through an omnipresent communication grid 
and produced art of such power and emotion, the likes of which the galaxy has never seen before or again because of us. They converted their homeworld into a paradise by their standards, and many, ten to the sixes of them, poured out into the surrounding system with a rapidity and vigour that we could only envy. With bodies built to survive every environment, from the daylit surface of their innermost world to the atmosphere of their largest gas giant and the cold void in between, they set out to sculpt their system into something beautiful. At first we thought them simple miners, stripping the rocky planets and moons for vital resources, but then we began to see the purpose to their constructions, the artworks carved into every surface and traced across the system in glittering lights and dancing fusion trails. And still, our terrible gift approached. They had less than two to the two dearly to see it, following so closely on the trail of its own light. In that time, oh so brief even by their fleeting lives, more than ten to the ten sentients prepared for death, lovers exchanged last words. Separated by worlds and the tyranny of light speed, their planet-side engineers worked frantically to build sufficient transmission infrastructure to upload the countless masses with the necessary neural modifications, while those above dumped lifetimes of music and literature from their databanks to make room for passengers. Those lacking the required hardware or the time to acquire it consigned themselves to death, lashed out in fear and pain, or simply went about their lives as best they could under the circumstances. The gift arrived suddenly the light of its impact visible in our skies, shining bright and cruel even to the unaugmented ocular receptor. We watched and we wept for our victims. Dead, so many dealies before the light of their doom had even reached us. Many six to the fours of those who had been directly or even tangentially involved in the creation of the gift sealed their sparkles with paste as a final penance for the small role they had played in this atrocity. The light dimmed, the dust cleared, and our observatories refocused upon the place where their shining blue world had once hung in the void, and found only dust, and the pale gleam of an orphaned moon, wrapped in a thin burning wisp of atmosphere that had once belonged to its parent. Radiation and relativistic shrapnel had wiped out much of the inner system, and continent-sized chunks of molten rock carried screaming ghosts outward at interstellar escape velocities, damned to wander the great void for an eternity. The damage was apocalyptic but not complete. From the shadows of the outer worlds, tiny points of light emerged. Thousands of fusion trails of single ships and world ships and everything in between. Many ten to the sixes of survivors in flesh and steel, and memory banks ready to rebuild. For a few moments we felt relief, even joy, and we were filled with the hope that their culture and art would survive the terrible blow we had dealt them. Then came the message 
tightly focused at our star, transmitted simultaneously by hundreds of their ships. We know you are out there, and we are coming for you. Message ends. Goodness, I love these kinds of stories. Nothing quite like science fiction stories involving the human race, especially stories that place humans at a pivotal point in the universe's future or us up against insurmountable odds. It might seem egotistical or self-centered placing humans at the focal point of space stories, but I understand why we do this. In my own opinion, we place ourselves in a position of what-ifs because realistically it raises the genuinely scary questions of what the hell could happen to us out there in space, and in a situation we just don't have any control over, yet. And even when we start to, are we crushed? Are we allowed to survive? Or perhaps are we yet another entity's slave? I find this fascinating. Do you think there are aliens out there? What do you think is the first thing they would do upon meeting us? Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episodes, you brilliant people. Next week, I'm going to have some more Japanese stories for you, some great listener stories, of course, and try to squeeze something different in there for you as well. Thank you so much for listening. Be safe, be brilliant, and I'll catch you next week. As always, till next time.